today I am here with Thomas J. Ord, a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of interdisciplinary studies. Hello, Tom. Welcome hey. to the Random Thought Pod. Ah, thanks. It's good to be chatting with you. Yeah, it's good to have you back on. Um, I know, like, well, I guess this is a new show, but uh, prior to, I had you on the Wax Museum podcast, and we talked mm -hmm. about open and relational theology. That's right, yeah. And um, today, we're talking about another book of yours, God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. Um, early in your book, you address the phrase, God's ways are not our ways, and how it is essentially used to gaslight people on what love is. There's this assumption that God's love will not seem like love to us, but you believe God's loving is, in fact, like our loving. I like this, Good. and I need this. <laughs> And I, I find this to be the reason why Christian community is so often toxic. Um, mm. They say that what is not loving is loving. Mm -hmm. And so you use, you use an alternate explanation for much of the suffering that God supposedly allows in the Bible. It's not that he allows it. It's that he can't stop it. Um, can you explain this? Yeah, well, I'm really happy that you picked up on the uh, the misuse of the phrase "God's ways are not our ways," because it's got a grain of truth in it. Insofar as there are some things that about God that are different from us, but mm -hmm. people use it all the time to play the mystery card when difficult questions arise for for belief in God or how to make sense of the world. And instead of giving you a straightforward, you know, answer or at least proposal, they'll say, well, you know, it's a mystery. God's ways are not our ways. Who are we to know the mind of God? Everything's beyond our capacity to understand. And, and I just find that so unhelpful. Hmm. And what you ask is about my more provocative response, which is um, God simply can't control creation to prevent evils so unlike those who respond to you know why did why didn't god stop my rape or why didn't god prevent my cancer or whatever unlike those who say well you know i don't know it's a mystery i have a proposal that says that god simply can't control anyone or anything and the reason i think god can't do that is that i think god is loving all the time in every moment and more importantly perhaps god's love is inherently uncontrolling so if god always loves everyone and everything top to bottom quarks to quasars and this love is always inherently or essentially uncontrolling then we shouldn't expect god to prevent evil single-handedly right yeah, and I like to me, our fundamental belief about God makes such a difference mm. in who we become. Because mm -hmm. it's like if God can allow evil, even though He could prevent it, then I become a person who's willing to allow evil, even mm. though I could prevent it. Right. Those people need to learn a lesson. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like a lot of people who believe in God, like the view of God they have is one of two options. Either God is controlling absolutely everything which means that every horrific thing that happens in your life or in the world, God caused it, which, you know, that just doesn't make any sense. It also means that we don't have any genuine freedom, that there's no things like random thoughts, like your podcast is called, <laughs> because everything yeah. is what God has determined it would be. Um, yeah. So there are some people who have that view, but most people I I think have a different view, and I call it the, the God who operates half-assed. That is, this God could control and prevent every genuine evil that ever occurs, but God doesn't always do so, and God isn't working all the time to the utmost. God is just sort of going through life half-assed, helping sometimes, but not other times. And the proposal I have on the table says that God is always working 100% in every single moment at all times, but... This working of God is uncontrolling love. It's real influence. It's real action. But God can't control anyone or anything. I love it. All right. Um, so you say the limits to divine power come from God's nature of love, and you call that essential kenosis. Hmm. Is, that, is there more to describe on that? Because it sounds like you're kind of describing it already. But is there, yeah, like, what does I, well, essential kenosis mean? Yeah, thanks for asking that, because I think for some of your listeners, they will have heard the word kenosis and know that uh, it's found in Scripture. It's a Greek word. It's most famous uh, for a passage in Philippians that talks about Jesus uh, showing kenosis by self-emptying or self-giving in love, even taking the form of a servant and enduring death on the cross. And so uh, some theologians will take this kenosis idea and run with it. And they'll say, well, look, God is uh, a self-giving lover. And uh, we know this because of Jesus. But what they'll say is that God voluntarily does this, that God voluntarily gives and doesn't control, at least most of the time, but sometimes God will control. So it's kind of this, you know, you don't know if God's going to step in to intervene, to help out, to single-handedly stop evil, or if God's going to stand back and allow things to run their course. The essential kenosis view says that God, by nature, is self-giving love. That God doesn't make a decision whether or not to control because God simply can't control. It's God's nature. And that's different from, uh, you know, something outside of God somehow constraining God. Like some people think that the natural laws will constrain God or the devil and demons or, uh, you know, what is it? Scripture talks about principalities and powers that somehow God is constrained by these external things. I'm making the claim that it's God's very nature that sets limits on what God can and can't do. And that nature is a nature of love. I love that. Um, okay. So you use like a historic event as a bit of an analogy. Um, and I, I didn't know about this. Um, Michael Fortier. Uh -huh. um, and how Michael Fortier knew about Mick. 
McVeigh and Nichols planning the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, well, some people will say God doesn't cause evil. God allows it. God knows from all eternity what's going to happen. And we shouldn't blame evil on God because God didn't do it, but God knew about it in advance. And yet somehow they say God is um, not culpable. And so what this story, I think, illustrates nicely is this individual knew about the Oklahoma City bombing, knew what was going to happen, but didn't do anything to stop it, didn't talk to the police, didn't you know try to thwart the plans. And when this knowledge became uh, public, uh, he was sentenced to uh, prison for failing to stop the evil that he could have stopped had he alerted the police or done something. And so I say, look, if you think that God foreknows everything from all eternity, including the evils of your life and even the Oklahoma City bombing, and God doesn't prevent what God foreknows is going to happen, well, then you don't have a perfectly loving God. We need to reject the idea that God foreknows everything from all eternity and reject the idea that God has the kind of power to single-handedly prevent evil. Yeah, and I I think part of it is kind of like, well, like the way people justify that is like, well, what we think is evil isn't really evil. Right. It's like, well, God wanted that to happen, so it was supposed to happen. And I think when we get into that, it's just such dangerous territory. It's funny because on uh, on Twitter, I've been seeing, you know, a lot of people talking about how Christian morality is superior all the time. And I'm just like, it's not, dudes. Like, you guys, <laughs> like, like, this is something that's just driving me crazy right now. Is this like what I call a flat view of sin? And it's mm. like essentially where they're just kind of like every, every sin's the same. And mm. so if they look at that and they consider like being gay or transgender a sin as well, they kind of place all those things as the same thing and they can't see the difference between abuse and someone just trying to figure out who they are. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and because of that, it's like, this is why abuse is so rampant in the church because they're just like, well, everyone sins. We just got to forgive people. Yeah. And it's like, and so I, I think like this, this kind of core view of God um, and it's like, well, we don't understand it and it looks wrong, but it's actually right. Like as soon as we get into that territory, we get into that space where we can just say, well, God arbitrarily decides what's good and what's bad. Yeah. Therefore, what I'm doing is not abuse. And it's like, what? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, this whole idea that that God's understanding of love is entirely different from ours and we can't understand mm-hmm. it. The same people go to church on Sunday and sing song after song of praise about how loving God is. But if they yeah. don't understand what love is, then that, that uh, praise music has, is nonsense. We have yeah. to have some analogies between what we think is loving and what God thinks is loving. Um, Mm. That's crucial. Now, for me personally, I even have a definition of love that I think applies to God and to us. And that is that to love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others to promote well-being or overall well-being. So in other words, love aim is for what's good. and And that's true for God and it's true for us. I like that. Um, okay. So you use the shacks 
um, take on punishment for sin um, in the book. Um, and basically what the shack says is sin is its own punishment. Um, do you think that the Bible supports that notion that sin is its own punishment? I think for most of Scripture, that's the case, but not all of it. There are some mm. passages that sound as if God is the one doing the punishing. Um, right. I personally think that there are natural negative consequences for sin and that God's not in the punishing business. But there are some passages that I admit in Scripture sound as if God is the one doing the uh, – being the source of pain and suffering for sin. Now, I, I want to quickly add, however, that sometimes when people say sin is its own, um, is it, what was, I already forgot your punishment. Own punishment, yeah. Yeah. Um, that can sound like, well, if I sin, then, you know, I'm going to punish myself or anytime I'm going through pain and suffering, it must be a result of my own sin. But I think in reality, that's not true. Um, sometimes our, our pain and suffering is because of what we've done to ourselves, but often it's because of what other people have done. And um, so, you know, there are natural negative consequences for sin, but it might be someone else's sin that you're suffering from and not your own. Yeah. Well, I, I think too, like, it, it's funny. I remember um, I was questioning the whole existence of hell and talking to some like very evangelical friends about it. And they were like, well, if there's no hell, what's the point in following God? And I'm like, because you live a better life. Like, it's like right. you live a loving life and it's, but they're like, but I could just cheat and steal my whole life. And I'm like, there'd be no fulfillment in living that life. Right. And yeah, they totally couldn't really connect you. the concepts. But I'm like, yep. there's there's inherent good in doing good. You live a better life. And I think with like if you're talking about sin having its own consequences, like to me, if you go around screwing everyone over, of course they're gonna bear the negative consequences of that. But you unknowingly, probably, will be bearing those consequences too, because Yep. I mean, first of all, no one's going to like you, but you're also going to live a very empty life because right. you don't get the rewards of doing good for people. Yep. You're not going to like yourself. You're going to yeah. feel hollow. And uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. The, the people who say that the, you know, they really want health, otherwise they wouldn't, um, that things wouldn't make any sense to them. I, I can't help but think that they don't understand what I think is a central theme of scripture. And that is that God is a forgiving God who calls us to forgive. Um, yeah. I just can't reconcile a forgiving God with eternal conscious torment or hell. Yeah. And I'll choose forgiveness over belief in hell every day, every time, uh, every time. Well, I, and I think like for me, it's like, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Like, where I'm at faith wise, you know, I'm still kind of like, well, I don't know if it's about getting the theology, right. I think mm. it's about finding a theology that does the least harm. You know, it's mm. like, how can I be a better person? Can I, can I have a theology that makes me a better human being? Yeah. And I'm like, that's all that matters to me. And it's like, I mean, in the end, I'm like, I still think, you know, I screw up, I need forgiveness. And I think that's why I still kind of hold to Christianity because I'm like, 
I still believe that I need forgiveness, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to worry about trying to, you know, read the Bible and interpret it the right way so much as read the Bible and interpret it in such a way that I can be a better person and yeah. I can be better to people around me. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. I mean, I certainly don't think I have everything figured out. I'm not certain about things. Uh, I'm not certain God exists. But um, I'm betting my life that there is a God of love. I'm betting the way I live upon the notion that I ought to imitate that God of love and live a life of love myself. I could be wrong about that. Um, But it seems, as you mentioned earlier, it seems to prompt me or inspire me or lead me toward living a better life overall for myself and for others. And uh, it makes seems to make the world a better place. Now, you know, I'm not saying an atheist can't love because I do know atheists who love. I know other people in other religious traditions who live loving lives, and I got no problem with that. I totally support that. Uh, but I find most winsome, most persuasive, this vision of a God of love who I think is revealed in pretty profound ways in Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, And I'm intending to try to live my life as if it's true that that God exists. Yeah. And it's funny, yeah, because I hear people say that a lot where they're like, I'm not sure if God exists. And I'm like, I just have this sense of God always. Mm. And Mm. so I'm like, I'm not really doubting that. Yeah. Um, uh, And... But it's it's just interesting because I don't recognize God in Christianity a lot of times. Like a lot mm. of people who are have this this awful version of Christianity, they're like, "Well, I need to be aligned with God, then I can love my neighbor." I'm like, maybe not that God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I love it. So you you argue for a crimson rule, a rule that goes beyond the golden rule. Um, can you explain that? Yeah, the crimson rule, it has to, well, first let's start with the golden rule, which is mm-hmm. do to others as you would have them do to you. The crimson rule says that you ought to feel or empathize with others as you would have them empathize or feel like you do. In other words, you it's not just, you know, I'm going to do something for you, which I think has its place, but it's also I'm going to relate. I'm going to empathize. I'm going to try to walk in your shoes and feel what you're feeling. Um, mm. Too often, I think people with really good motives do things for others that end up not being so good for others, ends up harming others. And they could have avoided that harm had they taken some time to listen, to empathize, to try to figure out what is really needed in the situation instead of coming in, into it and imposing you know, what they think is right. I don't know. I'm, I'm a part of a community that does um, – that uh, I should say a denomination that has missionary work around the world. And when you yeah. look at the history of missions – 
there are lots of examples of people who came into places with an agenda, not listening to the folks who were there, and imposed certain ways of thinking, certain views that ended up doing a lot more harm, that if they would have showed up and first listened, empathized, got to know the context, the people, the traditions, they wouldn't probably have recommended or done the kinds of things they did uh, when they first arrived. So there's a crimson rule that I think will help us to love better, and that is to empathize with others. Yeah, yeah, and I think like it's like love others as you love yourself. It's like, well, that's still very self-centered. Yeah. I mean, it's it lends itself to colonialism, right? It's like I'm going to colonize these people, and like the difference between colonizing and liberation is, I think, liberation requires you listen to someone so you can figure out mm. how they can be set free instead yeah. of imposing your version of what freedom should look like. I like that. Yeah, yeah. The problem with loving others as you love them, love yourself, is that. You know, we each have certain preferences and certain things we like that maybe others wouldn't like. Um, yeah. You know, I personally like to backpack. And so a loving mm-hmm. thing uh, to do for me is to, you know, give me time away or give me backpacking equipment or, you know, something like that. My wife, yeah. she's not a backpacker. So if I give yeah. her on her birthday a brand new backpack, she's not going to appreciate that. <laughs> so yeah. you have to get to know other people to know how best to love them. Yeah, and it, it's funny too because like being kind of liberated from a lot of that. Like I, I think you know, like the um, evangelical in me would be like, yeah. well, I think that's what Jesus actually meant. But I'm like, now I'm just like, I doesn't matter either way. Yeah. This is a better way of looking at it. <laughs> it's yeah. like we can build on that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay, compassion. Compassion involves empathy. Um, and you say that means, in, in the Latin means to suffer with. Um, the compassionate person acts to promote well-being by emotionally engaging sufferers and maintaining healthy boundaries. Um, do you have any tips on keeping healthy boundaries? This is something I'm working through right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I, I would probably start with the great, the great command from Socrates: "Know thyself." But mm-hmm. I think we're all on an adventure to try to figure out who we are and what's healthy for us. So that's a, it's not something you arrive at, and from that point on, you've got it figured out. It's an ongoing process of knowing who you are. I think it's also mm-hmm. helpful to be in dialogue with people who care about you and who can see signs of um, what's going on in your life that might not be healthy because you haven't set boundaries. You know, for for me, my wife is pretty good at that. She can, she can identify uh, times in which people are using me or walking all over me, and I need to set some boundaries, and, and I do the same for her. So having someone who can, who's sort of an outside perspective, that can help as well. Uh, I think also once you identify some of your weaknesses, um, then that helps, at least if you have some sort of meditative practice or some sort of prayer practice, you might um, remind yourself that if you're in these sort of situations or with this kind of person, then um, you need to be very careful not to allow others to harm you. You need to set particular boundaries. Hmm. I like um, 
trying to think. I think it's Susan David. I really like the work of Susan David. She's a psychologist. Oh. And um, one of the things she talks about, too, is figure out what your values are. And yeah. Like, I, I know for me, what I'm realizing is I'm like a, I, I think I was calling it a headspace minimalist. I'm <laughs> like, what am I, what am I going to fill my brain with? Right. Yeah. And so like learning that there's, that's my boundary. It's like, I want to be thinking about the deeper things, the mm. deeper things that help other people. And yeah. so when things get me off track, I mean, there's a lot of conversations I can get into that. I'm like, this is just going to frustrate me. Like this yeah. person is going to see it this way. And so one of my boundaries is I just walk away from those conversations where it's just like, people are just bent on misunderstanding. I'm like, I can't, I can't engage with this. Yeah, that's a great illustration. Since you shared from your own life, I'll share from mine. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking the last week or so that I spend way too much time watching TikTok and Reels on my phone. <laughs> you know, I, I get on there and I hear a comic and it's pretty funny. And then I watch yeah. some great play in the NFL. And then the next thing it pops up is some wildlife thing where lions running down something. And, you know, before I know it, 45 minutes have gone by and it was entertaining and maybe there's a time and place for some of that, but I can quickly end up using way more time for that sort of thing than I need to. Hmm. I guess it's like, so how do you limit your time on TikTok? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is realizing it. So that's what I'm doing here. Part of it <laughs> is, um, you know, setting things up in my schedule to say, hey, these are what's what I really want to do. So put on my calendar, you know, do X, Y, or Z. So there's some little things that I try to do. And that's another values thing, right? Like it's like, these yes. are my values. I want to be doing this. Yeah. Yep. I mean, um, actually, I, I, I can have, I have a problem on the sort of the other side of this extreme, Sometimes I work too hard. Sometimes I'm a workaholic. I'm yeah. overscheduled and I don't allow time for entertainment like watching TikTok or movies or whatever. So yeah. it's trying to find this balance that I'm I'm after. Yeah, I find a lot of times too like my entertainment I see it as research. Mm, okay. <laughs> and so yeah, so I'm like I'm not sure like you know, I, I get asked all the time, when do you, when do you turn your brain off? I'm like, I, I, when I sleep yeah. <laughs> and it takes a while. <laughs> so, um, at least that's what I tell myself. It's research. Maybe it is entertainment. I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, you say God's heart breaks by what breaks us, but his heartbrokenness does not lead to despair. Mm. Um, so it sounds to me like God has good boundaries and maybe that's a good example that's set for us. Yeah, I think so. I mean, here is, uh, to get a little bit technical and nerdy, um, here's a, an important difference, I think, between God and us. I think God has an eternal nature of love that cannot be changed. To use the right. classic language, it's immutable. Uh, however, I think God's experience in relationship, ongoing relationship with us, changes moment by moment. And God has real emotions in response to what goes on in the world. God is uh, extremely happy and sad when we do things to promote well-being. God's disappointed and angry when we hurt one another. But um, 
we don't have that kind of eternal nature of love. And sometimes emotions can get the best of us. So we can respond to those negative or positive emotions in ways that are not healthy for us or for others. By contrast, I think because God's nature is always love, God never responds to those emotions in ways that harm us, uh, God's self, us, the world, or whatever. So um, I call this God's essence experience binate. There's an aspect of God that's unchanging and other aspects that change, whereas you and I, we don't have that eternal nature of love. We have to choose moment by moment to uh, love depending on the situation and the circumstances. Yeah. Wow. This is just, yeah, it's funny because I'm like always like kind of struggling with this concept of worship. And mm. it's like, you know, because it's like, okay, let's sing a worship song. Yeah. And I'm just like, why are we doing this? Like, it's, yeah. you know, like kind of, because um, I, I feel like it doesn't make people better human beings. But the mm. more you talk about this God whose, you know, essence is love, I'm like, I think I'm getting it now. Like, this makes Good. me want to worship. Yeah, me too. You know, I, I struggled with this some time ago. Um because you know, I'm in a low church tradition. We like to rock and roll in our worship. And mm-hmm. I remember sitting there thinking in church one time, okay, what's really happening when we sing all these worship songs? Um, yeah. Are we just here to remind ourselves of the divine attributes and hope that that will, you know, sort of maybe help us be better people, but at least be in awe or in... Uh, yeah, in praise of this incredible being. Is that really what this is all about? And then I realized that if I thought that God was a relational God, that God had emotions even, and that I could have a real impact, influence on God's experience, that my praise might actually make God pleased, might, hmm. uh, you know, make God um, uh, happy in some way. And also, it might help me to think that my life has a significance, a meaning. I mean, if if God is not affected by what we do, which is actually the very the common view of God in amongst uh, theologians in the Christian tradition, a view I reject, but very common. If God is not affected by us then it's hard to make sense of our lives as having real purpose or meaning or significance. Our lives don't really count if we're going to be here for a little while and then die and God is unaffected at all. But if you think God is relational like I do, then anything I do, including my worship, can actually make a difference to God. Wow. Now I want to go to a worship service. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. Okay, you you have a counselor friend, Brad, who stresses what he calls the ministry of human presence. Mm. Uh, I really like the sound of this. Um, what does it mean? Well, I think for him, it means something like this empathy that we've been talking about, that if we sit with people, hear their stories, and try to empathize with them, we not only can understand them better, but they can feel like what they, who they are and what they've been through ha- is acknowledged as having some value, as worthwhile. 
I think God is present to all of us and always listens to. So God is always a source of that kind of um, presence. But I think God is an invisible spirit, and it's sometimes easy for us not to uh, feel the same kind of connection as it is sitting with an actual human who's listening to us. So, um, you know, there's some differences between God and us in this, but I think both God and us can be a presence for others. All right. Um, okay. God is never on the only cause in any situation. Um, I feel this drives what you're really trying to say in this book. Um, it's complicated, but God is always love, and by understanding that there is complexity to it, um, we do not have to compromise the definition of love to make love okay with so much suffering and injustice. I think that's, I think we, yeah. God not being the only cause. Yeah. God <laughs> not being the only cause in any situation, that's at the heart of saying God can't. Because um, what it's saying is that there are other forces, factors, and actors at all times and places. And uh, God alone never brings about outcomes. That is huge, I think, for getting over the classic views of God's power, God being omnipotent, that sort of thing. Well, and, you're, and so you're talking about a God that's not unaffected by us. And so then when you talk about prayer, um, you say prayer opens up new possibilities for God's love to actually make a difference. That's right, yeah. Prayer, at least petitionary prayer, which is the kind of prayer most people think about, prayer actually can make better sense if you believe in the kind of God I believe in. Because not only is this God affected by what goes on, and prayer is activity that affects God, but this God never controls, which means that um, our prayers actually might make a difference in how God responds in the next moment. See, if God, if God is a controlling God and God can do whatever God wants to do, then it's hard for me to get motivated to pray in terms of asking God to do things because God, God can up and do whatever God wants to do. And, and yeah. you wouldn't think that a loving God would sit around on his butt waiting for me to pray before doing something loving. You'd think that God would just up and do it. And so it kind of makes petitionary prayer superfluous, unnecessary, an, an extra. Uh, but if you're like me and think that God is affected by what we do, responds moment by moment, and can't control, then our prayers can actually make a difference to how God acts in future moments. Yeah. Okay. So instead of God allowing evil to punish us or teach us, God squeezes good out of the evil he didn't want in the first place. Um, this is this is groundbreaking um, because it's a God good. who's always on our side. <laughs> and I, I find far too often people who believe in a God who allows evil are willing to allow evil against other people um and this this type of theology is so vital to us being better human beings have you seen this in practice that this theology makes people better human beings yeah i have because it it means that people don't have to blame god for all the crap that they go through or other people go through um you know because uh, 
I'm a part of the church. I'm an ordained elder in the church, and I grew up in the church. And I know you have that kind of background as well. Yeah. I'm guessing you're like me. You've probably heard people give testimonies in which they said something like, this bad thing happened to me in the past. Let's say yeah. my child died. This bad yeah. thing happened to me in the past. But now I've learned this X, Y, and Z, and yeah. something good has come out of it. And they give yeah. the impression that God wanted that bad thing to happen in order for the good thing that they now have in their lives. And yeah. as I heard those testimonies, I was like, oh, what kind of crappy God is that? You know, yeah. why wouldn't God just give the good stuff and, you know, eliminate the bad stuff? But what I'm saying here, when I say that God squeezes good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place, I'm saying that God doesn't orchestrate, cause, or allow this evil, but God doesn't give up on us in the situation and works to bring whatever good can come from the bad that God didn't initially want. Right. Okay, so a loving God disciplines us in non-coercive ways for our good. God's discipline isn't punitive. punitive. God's <laughs> discipline isn't punitive. It is instructive and encouraging. Good discipline promotes well-being by training us in ways that help us live well. I like this so much better because, once again, I actually feel like God is on our side. Yeah. And this is how I want to lead. Um Mm. Has this affected how you lead others? Yeah, it has in that um, I don't try to use a stick in <laughs> when I'm trying to lead. You know, the, you've probably mm. heard the old stick or carrot metaphor. You know, the carrot is right. supposed to be in front of the horse and it's supposed to lure the horse toward a particular direction, whereas the stick right. is what you hit the horse over the backside with. And yeah. um, I think some leaders would like to use the carrot to persuade the folks they're following, but they also keep their stick in there to hit them over the butt if they step out of line. And yeah. I don't think, I don't think we ought to hit our people over the butt. I think we ought to take the stick out, put the carrot there, but then also recognize, uh, help our people we lead to recognize that when they do decide to do things that are harmful, there are negative consequences. I, as the leader, am not going to take the stick and apply those negative consequences, but there's just natural negative consequences when you choose something other than what love asks of us. Yeah, and I, I think like within any organization too, it's like what is the essence of our values? Yeah, yeah. Why are we, why are we going in this direction? And then I think once you inspire people in that way, it's like when you get off track, it's like, well, here's how we got off track. And these are the consequences for us getting off track. We're now right. not aligning with our values. Yeah, yeah. And do we really want to get back to our values? Are Do we really find those valuable that we want to pursue? Then let's do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, Ellie Weasel. I, I love, I've read that. I can't remember what book it is. Uh, Night is his most famous one. Okay, maybe I'm not sure if I read that one or not, but um, okay. So he was in a con Nazi concentration camp. This is so powerful. Um, he asks, "Where is God?" And the answer came to him, hanging from the gallows. It's such a powerful image. Um, mm. So, do you see you see God as a God who suffers with us? 
I do, yeah. And I think that's becoming more and more common among theologians to say that God is not watching us from a distance like Bette Midler's God, but God is actually feeling what we feel in the midst of yeah. our pain and suffering. Now, I don't yeah. think that answer alone uh, helps us solve the questions of evil, because uh, if God has the capacity to prevent evil, but just decides to suffer alongside with us, then it seems like you get kind of a, a sadomasochist kind of God, kind of a, <laughs> I'm, mm-hmm. I could stop this pain, but I just want to hurt with you. That that doesn't seem very wise. It would be like going to the, the doctor and saying, you know, I've got a really uh, – some. Uh, uh, skin can't or skin rash here and it's given me lots of pain and instead of the doctor giving you some medicine to cure it the doctor says well let me rub my leg up side of yours so i can have that pain too well that would make <laughs> no sense right if the yeah. doctor has the capacity to be get rid of the rash then that god or that the doctor ought to do so and i think the same is true with god you have to believe that god not only suffers with us but can't single-handedly prevent whatever causes that suffering. Right. So unlike a dictator, the God of love needs our cooperation to fulfill ultimate purposes. Good leaders work in tandem with others. This partnership feels more like a friendship than a using. I remember Mm. (laughs) growing up evangelical, it's like, I just want God to use me. Yeah. But it sounds like the mind shift is not about God using us so much as God partnering with us yes. in creation. Yes, yeah. Yep, we have a role to play to cooperate with God. We're not robots that God, you know, dictates to. Uh, we're co-laborers, co-adventurers, and um, that's huge. To say that God needs us is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable because you and I grew up in traditions in which they wanted to portray God as someone who had no needs whatsoever. God might decide to let you do something in the work of God to participate in some way, but God didn't really need you. God could just sovereignly up and fix whatever God wanted to fix. And what I'm proposing in this book is that God actually needs you and me, that we have uh, essential work to do in the work of love that God wants to see come to fruition in our lives and in the world. Hmm. I just like keep thinking of this, like theology is like a model, a model to understand this, right? Like it's, yeah. And it's a beautiful model. Like I, I like where it's taking us. Yeah, um, that's, I'm glad you say that. You know, I, I wrote a book that came out to almost 10 years ago called The Uncontrolling Love of God. And mm-hmm. I lay out seven models. And this is the, the fourth model of the seven. It kind of compares, you know, like one model is God does everything. Another yeah. model is God created the world, but now watches from a distance. You know, I had all these different models and I said, okay, here's, here's the options here on the table. There's probably more than these seven, but these are the main options. And this essential kenosis or the God can't view is one of those options. Now let's compare the each to one another and what are their advantages and disadvantages yeah yeah 
Um, so I, I love this concept of conspiring prayer. I remember reading a separate book on this. I think it was like, yeah, Mark Carroll's. I think it's Mark. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it does. Yeah, that, I do have that down as Mark Karras. Okay, good. Um, so can you explain conspiring prayer? Yeah, to conspire means to breathe along with. <laughs> and mm. so conspiring prayer is that is a kind of prayer that doesn't think that God alone is going to fix whatever we're thinking about or praying about. Nor does it mean that we alone have to fix everything, but there's this cooperation, this collaboration between God and us. And if we pray thinking that we and God have a role to play, that makes a difference not only in how we pray, but what expectations we might have of things. Hmm. All right. One last thing. Tell me about your newest book, The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Omnipotence. Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for asking. Well, it, it's, uh, it's kind of like a, a concerto with four parts. The first part is a biblical part in which I show that the idea of omnipotence or even the idea that God is almighty is not in the Bible. It's not in the Hebrew or in the Greek. And mistakes were made in translation for uh, the kinds of texts that we have today that sometimes call God Almighty, but Almighty and Omnipotence aren't in the Bible. The second movement is to say that even those people who want to call God Omnipotent, whether they're conservative or liberal theologians and philosopher, they have always qualified what they mean by it. They've said, well, God can do anything except God can't make one plus one equal three, except God can't stop existing, except God can't make a married bachelor, except, except, except. All these exceptions are qualifications. And so that chapter's argument is that omnipotence dies a death of a thousand qualifications. The third chapter is a chapter related to evil, and it has some of the similar arguments uh, that you find in God can't, although they're a little shortened and I, I present them differently. But then the last chapter is my alternative to omnipotence, a word I call I coined called amnipotence. Ami meaning love, potence meaning power, and so I explain how God's genuine power, real power, is the power of uncontrolling love. Beautiful. Yeah, I thanks. actually bought that book today. Good, <laughs> so good. I'll have to read through it, and then I'll get back to you. <laughs> oh, excellent. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, thank you. Um, where can my listeners get in touch with your work? Well, uh, I have a personal website, my full name, Thomas J. Ord. That's Thomas, then J-A-Y-O-O-R-D.com. You can also find me on Facebook. I was going to say Twitter, X. Now I've got to get the right name. <laughs> Other yes, social X. media things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm pretty accessible if you, if you want to find me. Sounds great. But yeah, we'll definitely do this again. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation.